At this time, I'm going to invite all the kids out this side door. And for the people standing in the room, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Esther. And if you don't have a print Bible in front of you, this is going to be a really hard sermon to get through. So we have hardback Bibles up on the back wall right there. If you want to go grab one of those, it's page 483. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. If you need a Bible, they are in the back on page 483. Uh, but join us, we're into Esther uh, this morning. If this is your first Sunday or your first Sunday back in a while, we are going through the whole Old Testament, one book uh, of the Old Testament per week. We are into the book of Esther. And it's only 10 short chapters, and so we're going to be looking at the whole story of Esther today, which is why you'll probably need a Bible out in front of you. Uh, but when it comes to the whole series, we want to show how the whole Word of God is for the whole people of God into making us whole people again. And the whole Old Testament points to the whole Christ. Now, see how many times I get to use that word? Uh, so with that in mind, let's go to Esther chapter 4. Uh, these verses may not make any sense, but by the end of our sermon time, they should make sense to you. Uh, look with me at Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord to us out of Esther chapter 4. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray as we open up God's word together in the book of Esther. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through stories. And they're stories that we can contemplate and think about that echo through the centuries. And Father, would we see how these point to your son Jesus and how they apply to our very lives even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's do a quick thought experiment if we can. Imagine you took a five-year-old, a five-year-old little girl, and let's say you took the five-year-old and you never, ever, ever let her eat real watermelon. Instead, what you did was you gave her watermelon sugar patch kids and you gave her watermelon flavored gum. And let's say that she never in her life bit into a real piece of watermelon, and never had the joy of spitting something out and not being scolded for it at the dinner table. <laughs> now, after years and years of only trying watermelon-flavored candies, let's fast forward to that little girl's life when, I don't know, she's eight or nine, a nine-year-old. After several years, and she's never tasted real watermelon, do you think if you placed a feast in front of her of delicious food, and you gave her a piece of delicious real watermelon with the seeds in it. 
the only real way to eat watermelon. Do you think she would really have a palate for that? Or do you think she would really actually just want the processed candied version of it? You know, I think when you and I, we come to the Bible, we don't really know what to do with it because we haven't really developed a palate for it. Uh, we would rather have sort of processed truth, right? I mean, isn't that what like nightly news is? It's the processed truth, right? Uh, people take stories or they take the truth and they like work it in all kinds of shapes the way like a baker can knead dough, right? And when we come to the Bible, sometimes we don't really want what the Bible says. What we want is like a processed version of it to suit our tastes, right? And just like a little girl, if she's raised on watermelon-flavored bubblegum, doesn't actually possibly like real watermelon, I think in many ways, sometimes when we grow up in the faith and we grow up in the church, or maybe we come to the church later on in life, we realize that we've never actually just bitten into a slice of watermelon, have we? And when we do, hmm, there's some seeds in it. And so with that in mind, use that thought experiment, because when we come to Esther, uh, we have this idea, we, we typically fall into sort of these easy camps, right, where we may hear the story of Esther, and we fall into sort of these two easy camps. One is we want to portray Esther as some sort of Disney princess, right? She is like the, the little Disney princess in the Bible who shows up, and she's as cute as a button, and just bats her eyes and woos the king, and he really loves her, and he's a really, he comes around, he's a really great guy, and that's what we really think of Esther, right? She's like this Disney princess character, Right? And then, of course, you know, it's interesting when you uh, study the book of Esther, if you read how men uh, write on the book of Esther compared to how women write on it, it's very different. A lot of men commentators are very negative when it comes to their assessment of Esther. She does a lot of questionable things in this story, as you're going to find out. And they come to the conclusion that maybe she's actually more cowardly than she is anything. And maybe only when really push comes to shove, when her life is on the line, does Esther really do the right thing, so to speak. And then maybe by the end of it, maybe she doesn't even do the right thing at all. So which is it, right? How are we supposed to make up our mind? Well, the good news is that when God speaks in his word, he doesn't stutter. <laughs> he speaks clearly. The problem is not that God's word isn't clear. The problem is many of us have just grown up on a diet of bubble gum, and we don't know what to do with real fruit and vegetables that are actually nutritious. Uh, so with that in mind, I know this is a different kind of sermon. I mean, this whole series is really different, isn't it? No amens on that? <laughs> it's a little different. Uh, so what I want us to do uh, today is I'm going to try to make a feast in front of you. I'm going to try to show you what Esther tastes like. And I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good, that this story has real power, and it's more interesting than the Disney princess version and also the Esther is a coward version. I think there's, you know, there's more complexity to the story, which makes it timeless, right? right? It's, time, it's a timeless story. And it really points to Jesus if we have eyes to see it. Uh, so with that in mind, let's uh, dive into the book of Esther, and I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through the story, and then we're going to kind of look at the characters and try to figure out what in the world are we supposed to learn from this. All right, so look with me at Esther chapter 1. Speaking of feasts, well, we start off in Esther chapter 1. There is a king named Ahasuerus, whose other name is Xerxes, right? And so there's this king, and he is the king of Persia. And all, that, all you really need to know is he is the biggest, baddest dude that has ever lived on the face of the planet Earth up to this point. His kingdom stretches from India down to Ethiopia, right there, verse 1, 
right? He has 127 provinces. No one has ever been as powerful as him. You know, he's the descendants of the people who defeated big old bad Nebuchadnezzar. And he's very, very powerful. And so what he does, because he's also sort of a drunk, is he has 180 days of feasting and partying, right? And so that's how the story begins, is with a wicked king who has oppressed all kinds of people, uh, who is living off the backs of all the oppressed people groups, including the Israelites, right, including the land of Israel at this point. And he's having this lavish feast. And right there in verse 4, it says it lasts for 180 days. And that may seem like biblical hyperbole, but it's actually not. It's well attested that people in the ancient world, the lavish kings, would have months and months of just sort of um, hedonistic, wild times, right? And then in verse 5, if that's not enough, he has another feast. He has another one for seven more days. And then we're introduced to his lovely wife, Vashti, who then throws her own feast. But then, uh, of course, what happens at this second feast you know, like 184 days into the feast or whatever, good old, you know, Xerxes, the king, who's this sort of arrogant, drunk, wicked king, he decides late one night while he's really drunk with his drunk friends. Uh, you know, sorry, let me just pause for just a second. The way these parties would work in the ancient world is the Persians uh, and these guys, they would have sort of uh, these big lavish meals and their wives, their respectable acknowledged wives would eat with them. But as the party got more intense and the drinking became more prominent, what they would do is they would send away their respectable wives who didn't live with them, by the way, and then they would bring in the concubines and the music girls for entertainment. You can see sort of why, you know, the Old Testament Jewish people are sort of aghast at the sins of the nations, right? So it's very wild, very immoral, and what happens is King Xerxes, right there in verse 10, he and his eunuchs, that is guys who were castrated and typically slaves, so it's not just women who are abused sexually, it's also men. Everyone's serving this guy, both men and women. These seven eunuchs are around, and they're all drunk with the king. And the king says, you know what would be fun right now is if my wife, the queen, why doesn't she come out and parade her beautiful figure in front of all of us? Just like the concubines and the music girls kind of parade as entertainment, let's get the queen to do that. Did you feel that? You just spit out a seed. You just spit a seed out pretty gross, right? And so the queen, because she's a self-respecting queen, Queen Vashti, anyone here live on Vashti Way? Anyone? There's a road right over here called Vashti Way. I don't know why you name her after a pagan queen, but whatever. <laughs> Vashti, she does what? What should a woman do when her drunk husband and his knucklehead friends want her to parade her body around in front of them? Well, she says no. And what's funny is these guys get very offended, and the king gets very offended. And so he and his buddies say, well, what should we do? And it's very interesting, for as powerful as Xerxes is, he really just does what everybody tells him. In the first half of the book, he does whatever his advisors tell him, and in the second half of the book, he does whatever Esther tells him. Pretty interesting. Well, his buddies, you know, that they're all drunk, they decide, you know what we should do? We should send out an empire-wide edict, a statement, telling every wife to submit and follow her husband. Because we don't want this story to get out. All right? do you, do you, are you sensing the ineptitude? We don't want the story to get out, so let's send a letter to every inch of the empire telling them that the queen dishonored Xerxes. Right? And so, because the Persians had a great pony express, literally, <laughs> Esther tells us they were one of the best. They had specific horses that would pass the messages on. They send out this message to the entire empire, right? this sort of inept statement. And what 
Xerxes does is he tells his wife, Queen Vashti, you'll never enter my presence again. And so he dethrones her for not dancing in front of him. Are you sure? And then, of course, remember, this is in, a, in the context of you know, all these enslaved peoples, all these eunuchs, right? All these men who are lifelong slaves, never able to have their own kids because they exist to serve the king, right? And now the queen is now dethroned. So chapter 2, what happens? Well, you know, the king, you know, sobers up maybe a little bit in verse 1, and he, his anger abates, and he starts to miss his wife. And he's like, well, she was kind of pretty. It would be nice to have a queen. And so what does he do? He listens to his advisors again. And the advisors in chapter 2, they come up with a great plan. They say, well, don't take Vashti back. Instead, let us go round up a bunch of you know, really beautiful young teenage girls all throughout the empire. And then we will bring them to you. We'll spend a year pampering them and training them on etiquette and how to be seductive. And then night by night, you can decide what you want to do with them. And if any one of those happens to stick out one night, the next morning, if you like her, you know, still... Maybe, you know, ask her to be your queen. <laughs> Second seed. Is the Bible endorsing any of this, by the way? That goes without saying, but clearly the Bible is depicting this as wickedness. Uh, Xerxes is a wicked man where everyone exists to serve him, right? And so what happens? There is an orphan, a double orphan. Both her mother and her father are dead. Uh, it says that in verse 7, and then it repeats it, that there's a young orphan girl being raised by her cousin or her second cousin, this guy named Mordecai. And her real name is Hadassah in Hebrew, which means myrtle, which is this kind of wood right here, myrtle. But of course, she lives in exile. She ain't in Israel anymore. She's you know, serving at the whim of, you know, the nations. And so they give her a different name. They name her after a pagan goddess of Ishtar. They name her Esther. And then they take Mordecai and they take away his Jewish name, you know, her, her like surrogate father. And they don't let him go by his Jewish name. They name him after Marduk, the god of the Babylonians and the Persians. And they name him Marduka. So we have these two people who are given new names, uh, who have really very little power. And we have the orphan girl and she gets taken. And she gets brought into the harem. And so she spends a year preparing to go meet the king one night. But amazingly, she's a beautiful girl. And she has some wits about her because wherever she goes, people seem to like her. And so even when she's in the harem, the eunuchs who are also enslaved, working for the whim of this man, they take a liking to her and they protect her and make sure that she's well taken care of. Well, then, of course, the night comes she goes into the king, and the next morning he decides that she was the most beautiful and she was the most pleasing, and therefore she is to be queen. And so she's made queen. And guess what the king does? He throws another drinking party, another feast, right there in verse 18, and they call it Esther's feast. But what's very interesting about this is that Mordecai, you know, the surrogate uncle, if you will, the surrogate father of this orphan teenage girl, he says, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Don't tell anybody you worship the one true God. Keep that, you know, concealed. Don't call yourself Hadassah. Call yourself Ishtar. Make them think that you just fit in, right? Keep your head down low. And so, you know, in chapter 2, interestingly, if that's not interesting enough, the real story begins because Mordecai hears of a plot to kill King Xerxes. Now, who would be totally cool with King Xerxes being assassinated at this point? Me. But what's interesting is Mordecai because he respects his authorities, 
he goes to Queen Esther and he says, hey, some people are about to kill the king. You need to tell them. And so Mordecai saves the king's life. But we'll pick up that in just a second. In chapter 3, then, uh, Esther and Mordecai you know, are sort of existing in this world. Esther is the queen to Xerxes. And we're introduced to the ultimate bad guy uh, of the Jewish people in the Bible, a guy named Haman. And Haman is an Agagite, which means he's an Amalekite. That's important. We'll talk about that in a second. And he decides that everyone should bow down to him when he walks. He's like second or third in command. And so we have this sort of, you know, bureaucrat, this sort of second layer leader. And he decides wherever he goes, everyone should bow down. But he finds out there's one guy who will not bow down to him. And guess who it is? Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow down. And so Haman tries to figure out, why is there this one guy who won't bow down to me? And somebody says, well, it's because he's an Israelite. He's Jewish. And you're an Amalekite. And he'll never bow down to you. And so Haman comes up with a plot. He's too cowardly to take care of Mordecai himself, but Haman comes up with a plot to kill all of the Israelites throughout all of the empire. And he goes to good old drunk Xerxes. He says, hey, there's this people group. They oppose your leadership. They're really subversive. Can I just like wipe them out for you? And I'll pay you a bunch of money if you let me do this. And what does Xerxes say? Sure, take them out. You know, here's my signet ring. Make it happen. And so uh, he casts lots, you know, which are sort of like dice that would determine, you know, like sort of things that are supposed to happen in the future. And he casts these little dice type things and they tell him, a year from now, you should enact your plan. So a year from now, Haman and all these people are going to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom and they cannot defend themselves because it's coming from the very most, the most powerful man in the whole world, right? Okay, chapter four, look with me. This is the, the key part where we've read so Mordecai hears about this plan to kill all of God's people, right, the Jewish people at this time. And he goes, he puts himself in sackcloth and ashes, and, you know, he goes near Esther. He can't get too close to Esther because she belongs to the king. He can't get real close to her physically, but he gets somewhat close to her at the king's gate. And he says, hey, tell Esther what's going on. Um, Esther doesn't know what's happening. Pretty interesting. I mean, it shows sort of the powerlessness of even the queen. She doesn't even know what's going on. She has to get Mordecai to say, oh, you know, like your husband ordered all of us dead, right? And so Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, hey, can you go please ask Xerxes, plead on our behalf? And what does Esther say? Well, that's verse 11, which we just read. You know, this poor teenage orphan girl who is now married to this wonderful guy who may kill her. She says, look, if I go to him and he has not called me by name, he kills most people who do that unless he just happens to choose to show me grace. I mean, imagine being married to that guy. He's going to kill me if I ask for something he doesn't want to give me. And so she basically says, I'm really scared. And notice what Mordecai says. Mordecai says, don't think you're going to escape this, honey. You're going to, you we're all going to die. But then he says the most beautiful thing in the, in the whole book. He says in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. What does he say? He says, God is going to save us. I don't know how. I don't know when. I have an inviolable hope in the living God who will protect us. You know, um, somebody wants to find hope as a present expectation of a future blessing, a present expectation of a future blessing. That's what Mordecai has. 
He says, I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I am assured in the present that there is a future blessing. God is going to protect us. And Esther, how do you know if you were not placed in this kingdom for such a time as this? Maybe this is why the king is in your sphere of influence. And so what does she say? She says, get all the people you can think of, all of God's people, and have them fast for three days and pray to give me courage, and then I will go, and if I perish, I perish. Chapter 5, she shows up to the king. She gets all decked out, as all dolled up as she could. She looks stunningly beautiful, and the king sees her, and he's like, oh, yeah, my queen, she's really beautiful. So he, she comes up to him, and he extends the scepter, and he says, what do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom, honey. What's going on? And you know what she says? Well, if you like me and you're pleased with me, here's what I want. And what does she ask for? She says, I'm throwing a drinking party tomorrow. Can you come? <laughs> I'm throwing a feast. There's going to be a lot of wine. And I want you and I want Haman. And that's it. And what does the king say? He's already out the door. They run off and they have a drinking party. And there's a lot of wine. And it's Haman the king and Esther. And Haman has just eaten this up. He thinks, oh, man, the king likes me. The queen likes me. I'm going to kill all of my enemies. This is so great. And they all sort of get smashed. And Haman is so drunk, he stumbles back to his house. He's all drunk. He's all super happy because he thinks he's going to kill his enemies. And he then goes home, and he brags to his wife and all of his friends. He's like, man, I've got 10 sons. The queen likes me. The king likes me. I'm going to kill my enemies. Isn't life great? And they're like, oh, man, Haman, you are something else, right? But what's interesting, at the end of that first party, you remember when, the, when Esther says, hey, will you give me something? Can you go to my party? And the king says, yeah. Well, at the party, when there's Esther and the king and Haman, finally, the king knows something's up at the party. You know, he goes, okay, so really, what do you want? What, really, Esther, why, like, why, why are we hanging out? What do you really want? And what does she say? She goes, well, if you really want to know what I want, if, you're re if you really want to know what I want and you accept me, here's what I want. I'm throwing another party tomorrow. Can you come to that one too? And can you please bring Haman with me, with you? And the king's like, yeah. And so we have a drinking party. You know, Haman's all excited. And the next day there's going to be a second party. But what's interesting is it just so happens that that night, probably because he drank so much, he can't go to sleep. And so the king stays up all night because he can't sleep. And so what do you do if you can't sleep in the ancient world? You can't turn on a podcast or the TV, so you call one of your servants to read the annals of the history of your greatness. And so he has someone come up with a scroll and just read all of the great things that he's ever done in the history of his kingdom. And so this guy is like talking about, and then this happened, and then this happened. Right? It's very boring, right? Very unlike this sermon. And what happens is <laughs> as the king, as Esther, or excuse me, as Xerxes is sort of lying awake, and he can't sleep, all of a sudden, the guy just so happens to say, and then there was this time that two men tried to kill you, and you were saved by a man named Morduka. And the king sits up, and he says, really? I haven't heard that story. And the guy's like, yeah, it says it right here. There was a plot to kill you, and a guy named Mordecai saved your life. And then the king says, well, did we ever do anything for him? Did we ever thank him? And the guy says, no, you never did anything for him. And so Xerxes goes, that's not right. A few years later, Xerxes is going to be assassinated. So this is kind of a common theme. And so what Xerxes says is he says, you know what? 
we should really thank this guy. And early in the morning, guess who shows up? Who just happens to show up? Haman, the bad guy, right? And Haman comes up to the king, and the king goes, hey, Haman, what should I do with a guy that I'm really pleased with, a guy that I really want to thank and is really cool? And what is Haman thinking? He's like, oh, you're talking about me. You're talking about me? Here's what you should do. You should give him your robe. You should give him your horse and give him a golden crown and then parade him all over the city and just have somebody, some really important official, like just shout, this is what you know, the king does for those with whom he is well pleased. And the king says, great, but I want you to do that to Mordecai. <laughs> Your enemy, right? The king doesn't know he's his enemy. And so poor Haman, the next morning in chapter 6, takes the king's horse and he puts a robe on Mordecai. And then he has to sort of move around the whole city talking about how great Mordecai is. And this is the great turning in the story. This is the hinge, right? And so, of course, poor Haman, this awful man, he goes home to his family and he says, listen to what just happened. I had to go around parading about how great Mordecai is. And guess what his wife and his friends say? Oh, dude, you are so dead. You are so dead, God is going to deliver God's people, and you are, buddy, you are in trouble. Well, just as he's really worried about that, the next day comes, and as he's stressed out about all of this stuff, how, like how is he going to still kill Mordecai and his people if Mordecai is now being honored? A, a messenger comes, and he says, hey, it's time for the next drinking party. And Haman's like, okay. And he goes to the party, and buddy Esther is ready for him. And so, you know, they're drinking, and after they've drunk some more wine, this is chapter 7, while they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, hey, for real, what do you want from me? And then the queen, Esther, says, well, if you like me and you're pleased with me, why are you going to kill me? And why are you going to kill my people? And if you were just going to, like, sell us off as slaves, I would never have said anything because, you know, I don't want to make you miss out on a good sale of some slaves. But if you're going to kill us, that's really wrong. And Xerxes, the king, realizes in sort of a drunken stupor that he has been duped. And so he rushes out of the room, and he's stewing on how he realizes that Haman is actually the one trying to kill Mordecai, and Haman is the one trying to kill his beautiful wife who throws the best parties. So Xerxes is out in the courtyard trying to figure out what to do. And Haman, because he's also been drinking, he jumps on Esther. You know, remember, you're not supposed to be close to the king's wives or concubines. You're not supposed to be within seven feet of them. And he jumps on her while she's on the couch. Remember, people would recline when they would eat. They would lay down. And so he, like, jumps on her, and he's like, please, don't kill me. And then the king comes back in, and he sees this man all over his wife, and he has him killed. And then, you know, the irony is, you know, Haman had also made a spike that he wanted to, like, impale Mordecai on. And so the king looks around, and he's like, what are we supposed to do with Haman? And this eunuch says, oh, hey, you know, like, Haman had built a spike. I'm just saying. He built a spike. <laughs> and so Xerxes is like, that's a brilliant idea. Hang him on the spike. So Haman ends up being impaled on the thing that he was going to impale Mordecai on. And then in chapter 8, what happens is Esther then sends out a letter. Uh, you know, the king says, Esther, what do you want me to do? Remember, he's very, he's very inept as a leader. He's like, Esther, what do you want me to do? And Esther says, well, let me send out a letter telling all of God's people to defend themselves and to tell all the people in the province to protect them and aid the Jewish people. And so that letter goes out, you know, the, the Persian Pony Express, right? And what's really cool about it is at the end of chapter 8, what happens is people realize man, the God of the Israelites is really powerful. 
And he has delivered the Israelites uh, over into, not delivered them over to death, but has delivered them from death. And now the guy Mordecai is like second in command. He's Jewish. The queen is Jewish. Well, we shouldn't fight against the Jewish people. And what's really interesting at the end of chapter 8 is it says this. There was all kind of gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So all kind of different, you know, pagan, heathen people, you know, non-Jewish people align themselves with the God of the Bible because they see his hand delivering his people. And then the Jews enact punishment on that day. Instead of being attacked by their enemies, they attack their enemies. They wipe them all out. Uh, It's this beautiful self-defense. They don't take any of the people's plunder, but they kill off all of their enemies. And then the story ends with the author telling us, this is the great festival called Purim which remembers that when the, 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 the lot, which is the word pur, when the lot was cast, uh, God's people are not uh, protected by a roll of the dice. They're protected by the living God, right? And that's sort of the book of Esther. All right, so what in the world are we supposed to do with that? Well, let me just sort of run through uh, what I think you should be seeing in this story. Uh, so what are we supposed to be seeing in Xerxes? Well, Xerxes is a drunk despot. He's an awful guy. He's one of the evil pagan kings of old. And, you know, when we think about how he treated his first wife, Vashti, you know, back in chapter one, remember when he wanted to parade her around? You know, it's interesting to me that she does the right thing and not going along with his drunken plan. But what happens to her? You know, she takes this moral stand, but what happens to her? Well, she ends up being dethroned, right? It does not go well for her. Um, and before you get like real sympathetic about Vashti, before you're like, oh, blessed Vashti, this lady buried 14 children alive as an offering to the God of the underworld in her life. She's not all that great, okay? These are pagan people. And the point of these stories of Xerxes and Vashti, I think, is to depict what life is like when you and I don't know God. <laughs> what is the real world actually like? Well, you have powerful people like Xerxes who see young women, even young men, at their whim. Uh, you know, they're committed to their own joy, right? They're committed to their own pleasure, right? They abuse alcohol and they abuse other people. I mean, this is the world without God. You know, the New Testament talks about it like this. Um, in Titus, it says, it gives this depiction of what life is like before we know God. In Titus chapter 3, it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I mean, that's what life was like for Xerxes and Vashti. But what changes? Paul goes on in Titus and he says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, when we look at Xerxes and Vashti, we are reminded of the hopelessness of life without God. We hate others and we are hated by them and we pass our days in malice and envy, slaves to our passions. And what needs to happen is we need to know God. We need to know his justice and his mercy. That's the hope of the world. And unfortunately, Vashti does not know that. And so she doesn't have hope. I mean, Romans 8 says, all things work together for good. For whom? All things work together for good. For those who what? Who love him. 
That's not a promise for all peoples. That is not a promise for Haman. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the good news for Esther and Mordecai. And this is why we proclaim the gospel to people who need to know Jesus. They are of the world and they will perish with the world unless Christ shines on them. What needs to happen to Vashti and Xerxes? They need to meet the true God and repent. <laughs> and that's, saying, that's the same thing for you and me. What are we supposed to see in Haman? You know, boo, Haman, what a jerk, right? Uh, when, when Jews celebrate, even to this day, when they celebrate Purim, uh, when they, they will read the book of Esther out loud during the festival. And anytime the rabbi says the name Haman, everyone's supposed to shout and hiss and boo so you don't actually hear his name. Uh, you know, it's fascinating is, you know, uh, there are always Hamans, aren't there? There's always wicked people, right? Um, Marion Ann Taylor is a uh, Bible scholar in Canada, and she wrote a beautiful commentary on this book. And in her book, uh, she cites that actually Hitler himself drew a parallel between himself and Haman in 1944. He gave a speech in Germany where he explicitly says that he was here to finish what Haman started. Isn't it funny how there's always going to be wicked people who try to kill off God's people, right? There's Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to kill all the Jewish boys, and what happens? God raises up a deliverer, Moses, right? The people of the land try to wipe them out, but God raises up judges and kings, right? The Amalekites come, and they try to kill God's people. They're the first people who try to kill uh, the Israelites, but God raises up kings and judges to protect them, right? And then here in Esther, there's a guy named Haman, but what does God do? He delivers his people, right? So we see the, sort of this continuing battle, right, between God and his people in this wicked world. So what are we supposed to do then, you know, when we think about Haman? You know, it's a little like the impaling. Mm, give me the Veggie Tales version. Veggie Tales, what is it? What, you remember, anyone have seen the Esther? He goes to the island of perpetual tickling, <laughs> which is some sadistic torture, by the way. Perpetual tickling? Remember, here's, here's the bubble gum, here's the real watermelon. Uh, the important thing to know when, when Esther says, wipe them all out, there's two things I want to say about that. One is going to be like, mm, okay. The other one is going to really challenge you to bite into the watermelon, okay? Number one, remember, this is always self-defense. They don't just willy-nilly kill everybody. They kill people like Haman, who are literally going to kill them. And the, over and over, when you read chapters 9 and 10, it's always in self-defense on specific people who were going to kill them, right? Uh, Mordecai does not come up with the plan to impale anybody. That was actually Haman's plan to impale him. And what happens is the king orders him impaled. You know, this is exactly the sort of biblical justice that we see all throughout, you know, the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, right? Uh, the book of Proverbs says, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Right? The, the evil that you want to inflict on other people will end up inflicting you. Right? And this is sort of the hope of heaven and hell for us, right? is that there can be wicked people like Hitler who do wicked things, and they may seem like they get away with it. But we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account on what we have done in the body, whether good or ill. Uh, there is no sort of trap door out of the judgment of God. And for the believer, that is assurance. Right, that God is both merciful and just. So the first thing is, remember, remember this is self-defense. The second thing, here's the thing that's going to maybe, you know, I don't know, trouble you or challenge you. But um, remember Haman, bad guy Haman, and then there's Esther. Remember this, um, Haman is an Amalekite. 
And he specifically, multiple times in the book of Esther, it says that he is an Agagite. And we're like, what does that mean? Well, Agag was the ancient king of the Amalekites. And if you go way, way, way back into the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the first king of Israel, Saul, is said he has to wipe out this entire group of people, the Amalekites, because they are all wicked and God has deemed them worthy of his punishment. And Saul is given a command, take them all out. And they represent sort of the wicked of the time. And so King Saul is supposed to take out the Amalekites. But if you read in 1 Samuel 15, what does Saul do? Saul does not obey the Lord, and he lets one guy survive. Who's the guy that survives? King Agag. And so here we have a guy who's a descendant of Agag. And what happens is Saul, in the Old Testament, right, of the line of Benjamin, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul is supposed to take out all these people because they are the enemies. And God doesn't call all people to wipe out all people all the time, but specifically this group of people were supposed to be taken care of. And now we see why. Why was Saul Saul supposed to kill Agag? Because there was something in their hearts that was always going to fight against God's people. And you know what's really interesting about Esther? Is what tribe do you think Esther is from? She's from the tribe of Benjamin. She is Saul's great-great-great-great-granddaughter. And her great-great-grandpa was supposed to take out Agag, and he didn't, and take them all out. And what does Esther do? She finishes the job that Saul was supposed to have done from the beginning. Maybe think about it this way. Um, Margaret Thatcher, remember her? She famously said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman, right? If you want to deal with the Amalekites, we get a lot of talk from Saul, but you got to let Esther go in and finish the job, right? So what are we supposed to do with this story? You know, seems like a lot of blood in the Bible, right? Uh, But remember, this is all pointing us back to whose side are we on? Are we on the Lord's side or are we on Haman's side? And each one of us is going to have to make that decision for ourselves and face the Lord. Are we going to be with the Lord? And, and bow down to the king of Israel, Jesus Christ? Or are we going to side with the evil and the wicked ones? All right, so what are we supposed to see from Mordecai? Remember Mordecai, the blessed uncle who adopts this orphan girl? Well, I think that what we're supposed to see in him is the incredible hope that he has, right? Because if you notice, when he goes to Esther, he's very distraught, and he says, Esther, you've got to plead for us. But notice in verse four fourteen, he does not say, because if you don't, we're all going to die, He knows that God has made a covenant promise to this people that one day they will bless the whole world and they will never be removed from the earth. And so he is confident that God is going to finish his plan. And he doesn't say, Esther, if you don't speak up, it's all hanging on you. Instead, what he says is he says, God will deliver us. God will win in the end. The question is, are you going to be on his side or not? You see how different that kind of hope is? Hope is a present expectation of a what? Of a future blessing. It is a present expectation of a future blessing. And Mordecai has that. He knows that somehow, some way, God is going to deliver his people. He doesn't know the details, but he never lets go of the hope. Right? So what are we supposed to see then from Esther? Um, Let me just finish up with Esther. You know, things to see in Esther. Number one, um, I want you to see her 
Uh, I think as she's depicted in this book. You know, some people look at Esther and they see sort of this pillar of virtue, right? She's this godly woman that we should all want our daughters like. And then there's other people who look at her and they think she's very, like, you know, um, questionable in her morality. She's drinking all the time. She's sleeping with this guy. She eats the food. And it's very interesting, like I said, when you compare men commentators to women commentators, how they view Esther. You know, if you think about it, she eats the food of the Persians that they give her, unlike Daniel who was in exile, and he wouldn't eat their food, right? And there are some guys who stand up and say, we will never bow down to the, to the idol, and then she ends up sleeping with the king. So which is it? So is she a good moral character, or is she this pillar of virtue? Which is it? Um, well, Marion Ann Taylor, uh, that uh, biblical scholar out of the University of Toronto, uh, she says that we're probably best seeing Esther neither as sort of a pillar of virtue nor as a coward. Uh, instead, we should see her as a survivor, and she's a survivor, and she is a, a person who's been through severe trauma. And the beautiful thing is, is that God meets her where she is, right? God meets her. She's in exile. She doesn't have her parents. Uh, she's separated from Mordecai. She's in this crazy situation. She's part of, you know, this group of people who just all serve this king, and she's surviving. But God meets her there. And when she shows just a little bit of faith, you know, if I perish, I perish. I will do what God wants me to do. God blesses that decision. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when I think about Esther, it gives me a lot of hope because, uh, friends, we're all going to be faced with some pretty tough challenges over the next couple of years where we're going to have to figure out what does it really mean to live as a Christian in a pagan world where our values are not the world's values, Right? And what we see in Esther is she hides her faith for a long time. And she only reveals that she's a Jewish person and loves the Lord until after that second drinking party, right? And what I want you to see in Esther then, I guess, is just think about it this way. It's going to be increasingly hard for us as believers. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to act like I noticed that. I do. And I know you do. And now you know I do. Know you know as well. <laughs> but if you just press pause, you know, on Esther, should, shouldn't, shouldn't she have spoken up a long time ago? Shouldn't she have going to stand for God? Shouldn't she have stood up and said, no, this is wrong. I'm Jewish. Here I am. You know? Isn't that what evangelism is? Isn't that what it means to stand up and proclaim who you are? Isn't it interesting that she hides who she is for a long time? Years. Years go by. And I think it's neither that she is this pillar of virtue, nor is it that she's a coward. She's a survivor. And it's a picture of what we as Christians are probably going to be facing in innumerable situations that are too numerous to count, where you are going to have to figure out when do you take a stand for God and when do you conceal it? Let me give you a real example from a friend of mine. A few years ago, a friend of mine who I can't name uh, ended up leaving the ministry, and he decided he was going to go get a Ph.D. in education at a major public university back east. So he gets into this Ph.D. program, and he's just trying to keep his head down and just get his degree so he can go have a job as a professor. Well, a few years into the program, it's an eight-year program for this PhD, a few years into the program, uh, the Oberfeld decision comes down from the Supreme Court allowing gay marriage. And so the head of the education department 
at this university emails all of the PhD candidates and all of the professors saying we are going to raise a bunch of money and give it to this couple that's getting married and celebrate this you know, landmark decision. And we want all of you to contribute to this like, beautiful gift to this same-sex couple. And so my friend is a Christian, and that conflicts with his belief that God instituted marriage between a man and a woman. So what is he supposed to do? Should he give towards it or should he not? Well, he prayed about it and he decided that this was what he was going to do. Uh, he's ter- uh, by the way, he's terrified that they're going to remove him from the program for not abiding by the community guidelines, right, for being disrespectful to people. He's terrified he's going to get kicked out of the program, right? And so what happens is he spends a few days praying about it and he writes to the chair and he says, you know, hey, dear chair, I promise to always treat people with respect. I will always honor, you know, my coworker. I'll always show them dignity, but here's the problem. I am an evangelical Christian, and I do not give you the right to out me. I haven't told anybody in the department that I'm a Christian. I've never told you, but this conflicts with my faith, and I need you to respect that. Please don't tell anybody. And so it just so happened that two days after he wrote that letter, I happened to fly to his town. And I remember talking to him late at night all about this and praying with him that he would not be kicked out of his Ph.D. program because of his intolerance. And so a few days later, the professor emailed him and said, okay, that's fine, but I'm holding you to your word to treat people with respect. And my friend scooted out and he got his PhD and now he's teaching. Now, some of us, even myself, may think what he did was really cowardly, right? He should have taken a stronger stand. But in a way, he was just sort of surviving, wasn't he? He was just sort of going through it. And I think that's very similar to how Esther is operating. She could have taken a stand, could have done this, could have said that. But instead, she's trying to figure out how do I navigate so that when I do take a stand, it's at the right time. And she does take a stand, right? So I'm, I'm sure you're already thinking about situations in life where you may get put into something similar. You know? And the question of when do we take a stand, when do we not, what do we reveal, how loud about it are we, those are too innumerable to count. You know, I... Um, I empathize with anyone in the medical community and anyone in the teaching community on these same questions. How are you going to take a stand for Christ? Well, friends, I think this is where Esther starts to become a model and something for you to consider and think about. And this is why you need to know what real watermelon tastes like. Because if you've only lived off of processed truth and sort of like pithy sayings, it's not going to get you through this world. It just won't. The bubble gum won't last. You need the real stuff. And don't forget, you know, ultimately who Esther reminds us of. I mean, who is the ultimate deliverer of God's people? Who says, if I perish, I perish. Ultimately, Esther, this beautiful orphan teenage girl, is an echo and a type of Jesus who lays down his life for the people. And he lays down his life so that he and his body could tear down the wall of hostility between all peoples, the Persians and the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jews, so that there could be one new humanity. So that the, uh, the prophet of Isaiah, that one day people would flood to the land of Israel and say, teach us the law of God. So that people would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into like pruning hooks, and we would learn war no more. You see, friends, Esther is pointing us to the ultimate king 
who will do away with all of the injustice and sin in this world. And he will reign as the ultimate king who will never let us down. And we know he's good and we want to be a part of his kingdom because he is full of grace and truth. Now, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Esther. And Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters right now who are going to be uh, for many years to come in very similar situations as Esther. Lord, I pray that you would give them hope, that they would have a present expectation of a future blessing. Lord, that your plan will win. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And Lord, we pray that more and more men and women would come to know you in your truth and grace and that all peoples would see that our ultimate heart cries for justice and mercy are found in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.